Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. It's a big week in the Brexit story, with the action moving from Coventry to Brussels to Newcastle. Dennis Staunton will join us from London in a moment to talk about that. And we'll be getting the latest on the gun control debate in the US from our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. But it's Brexit first this week, and Dennis Staunton, our London editor, is on the line. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Chris. Dennis, uh, three big set piece events to discuss, really. We had Jeremy Corbyn's speech in Coventry on Monday. We have an, an important document coming out of Brussels tomorrow, Wednesday. And then a highly anticipated speech from, from Theresa May. We expect her to be in Newcastle on, on Friday. I might just take them in, in sequence. So first on Monday, we had um, Jeremy Corbyn, the, the leader of the Labour Party, finally nailed Labour's colours to the mast on the key questions surrounding Brexit and when he gave his first major speech on Brexit in over a year, astonishingly. Labour would seek to negotiate a new, comprehensive UK-EU customs union to ensure there are no tariffs with Europe and to help avoid any need whatsoever for a hard border in Northern Ireland. So, Dennis, that was Jeremy Corbyn. We heard a brief flavour of his speech there. What were the key elements? The main element really was that he... uh, committed Labour to trying to stay in a customs union with the European Union. Until now, the Labour position has been that uh, they would, for the transition period, rather like the government says, that they would stay in the customs union and the single market. And then after that, they wanted to have the the best possible access, tariff-free access to the single market, but they didn't really say how that was going to happen. Now, what Jeremy Corbyn said on Monday is we still accept the referendum result. We're not looking for a second referendum. We also don't think we can stay in the single market. And partly that's because I don't like some of the things involved in it, like uh, some of the state aid rules that he thinks would uh, prevent uh, a Labour government from intervening to support British industries. But what we, uh, what he said we do want is to have a customs union with the European Union. But he said that this customs union would have to be predicated on the idea that Labour or that the government, the British government, would have a say in any future European trade deals. So the importance of all of this is that, uh, first of all, as you say, he's nailed Labour's colours to the mast. And he's put, as they say, clear blue water between uh, the Labour position and the Conservative position on Brexit. The second thing is that what he's effectively done is to unlock the parliamentary arithmetic against a hard Brexit, so that you've got this small group of Conservative rebels who already defeated the government uh, in December uh, over having a meaningful vote on Brexit for Parliament. And these are people like Anna Soubry and Ken Clark and Nicky Morgan and a few others. And they've tabled a motion, uh, an amendment to a trade bill saying that they want Britain uh, to remain in a customs union. And so by uh, by coming out in favour of that, he's effectively putting all of Labour's MPs behind that and creating the conditions for a majority that would defeat Theresa May on the customs union. The customs union he talked about sounds very like the customs union that Britain is already a part of as part of the European Union. So what are the essential differences? Well, what he's saying is that actually, and it's kind of, I think, technically true, that once you leave the European Union, you're automatically outside the customs union and the single market. And so you'd have to form a new customs union. What he's saying is that we want this to be a customs union between the United Kingdom and the European Union. Now, you have a number of these. So, for example, Turkey has a customs union with the European Union. But that's not really a great deal uh, as far as Turkey is concerned, because, uh, say, if uh, the European Union signs a trade deal with 
South Korea. South Korea will have access to the Turkish market, but Turkey won't have access to the South Korean market. So Turkey does have access to the uh, EU market in goods uh, and vice versa. But also the other thing is that Turkey has no say in uh, in what these trade deals that the European Union does, what they what they entail. So what Jeremy Corbyn is saying is we'd like to follow. You have the same tariffs have the same tariff-free access across borders. And he's saying one reason, actually, he says that this would be a good thing would be because it would uh, help to avoid uh, a hard border in Northern Ireland, but that he's saying that, crucially, Britain would have to have some kind of a seat at the table. But he doesn't quite say exactly how that would be. But, of course, one of the big drawbacks, I suppose, of his proposal, from the point of view of, of, of those who think a, a key element of Brexit was that Britain would be able to negotiate its own trade deals with other countries around the world, he's prepared to give that up in return for the British government having a say in EU deals with, with other countries, isn't that it? Yes. I, what, and so that's been the government's pushback. Liam Fox, the International Trade Secretary, was uh, speaking this morning and basically saying precisely that. If you do this, you're tying one hand behind our backs so that although under Corbyn's proposal, you could probably uh, have separate trade deals for services because services tend not to be covered in a lot of international trade deals. So they might be able to do something like that. For goods, they wouldn't be able to. But the counter-argument to that, to what the government says, and all this idea of these great new international trade deals, uh, was made uh, very eloquently by Martin Donnelly, who was the top civil servant in Liam Fox's Department of International Trade. And he said that giving up uh, the customs union, the European Union customs union, in the hope of getting these trade deals, was a bit like giving up a three-course meal today for the promise of a packet of crisps sometimes in the future. So, Dennis, by pitching the speech in the way that he did yesterday, um, how much trouble, political trouble, do you think Jeremy Corbyn now has caused for Theresa May and the Conservative Party? I think a big headache because uh, the fact is that uh, they know that they're vulnerable. Uh, the, the government has, with the DUP, a majority, a working majority of 13. So all you need really, in theory, is seven uh, Conservative MPs to rebel. Now, uh, you probably need a few more because there'll be a couple of Labour MPs Kate Hoey and uh, Frank Field and maybe maybe some more who will vote with the government on something like the customs union. But if you have 10 or 15, say, if you have 15 conservative rebels, and there may be that many, then the government will be defeated on this uh, this whole issue of the customs union. Now, some of the Brexiteers are huffing and puffing and they're saying that they should call the, uh, the, the Tory rebels bluff by saying, by making this a confidence vote. And so saying to them, if you vote against the government on this, you will be bringing down the government, precipitating a general election and putting Jeremy Corbyn into Downing Street, which none of the Conservatives or Mainers would want to do. The problem is that's an empty threat because since the uh, the Fixed Term Parliaments Act in 2011, there are only two ways that you can actually precipitate an election. One is the way that they did it last year, which was that you get a two-thirds majority in the uh, House of Commons for a motion saying, we'd like an early general election. The other is that you actually have a specific motion which says, this House votes no confidence in the government. And if that's carried, 
You then wait for 14 days. And during that 14 days, everybody has a chance to try to form a government, including Jeremy Corbyn. And then 14 days later, you come back and you have another confidence motion. And then if that fails, then or if that succeeds, then the the government falls and you have a general election. So the problem for the Brexiteers is that this motion on the amendment about the customs union can't actually of itself bring down the government. So the Remainers, the Tory Remainers, will never be pulling the trigger. The people who will pull the trigger on the government would be the entire Conservative Party, including the Brexiteers, something that they won't do because they don't want to risk Brexit. And their big fear is that if Theresa May goes, if there's a general election, if Corbyn gets in, that somehow Brexit will not happen next year. So in a nutshell now, Labour has put itself in a position where it can really help to shape, you know, it can change maybe the shape of Brexit counter because it can attract consistently maybe the support of Tory MPs who can vote um, on the same side as Labour without actually risking putting Jeremy Corbyn in power. Yes, so it, it can it, it can force the government into a position of softening its stance on Brexit. And so the first thing to go could be this commitment not to have a customs union with the European Union. What a lot of the, uh, the pro-Europeans, both within the Conservative Party, but particularly in the Labour Party, would like would be to, for Corbyn to go further and actually to demand that they should stay in the single market as well. He's not ready to do that. It may be that he moves towards it. I'm not quite sure if he will get that far. But he may, uh, you know, the, the way in which he's been doing things so far has been moving quite slowly, staying maybe a step behind public opinion, but ahead of the Conservative Party. And that's a strategy that has served him pretty well. There's also a, a low political uh, cunning involved in all of this where Corbyn is concerned. Uh, first of all, is the fact that the move obviously makes the government uncomfortable and it could precipitate in certain circumstances a general election, which he thinks he'd win. The other is, though, more proximate, which is that in May you've got local elections, particularly in London. They're in London and they're in Birmingham and a couple of other places. And in London, it's a big Remain voting city. Making uh, Labour the party of the softer Brexit is a big help uh, probably in London, where the Conservatives are already bracing themselves for big defeats. Now, tomorrow, Wednesday, there will be another development in this story, which has the potential to cause further discomfort to Theresa May and her government, and that is the publication of the EU's draft withdrawal agreement with the EU. Tell us something about that, Dennis, and what that involves. In December, as you will remember, uh, Theresa May and the European Union, they agreed what they called a joint report, which was really uh, a, a kind of an interim report on what they had agreed about certain things to do with the rights of uh, EU citizens in Britain and British citizens in uh, in the European Union uh, after Brexit, how much money uh, Britain would pay on its way out, and also what they were going to do to avoid uh, hard border in Ireland. And uh, the first two elements of it, the citizens' rights and the money, they're kind of sorted. But what they wanted to do was to put this entire document into a legal text. And so the European Union are drawing up a draft legal text, which they'll produce, they'll publish in the next day or two. And the crucial bit is about Northern Ireland, because uh, what they said in terms of avoiding a hard border, border in Northern Ireland is that, uh, first of all, they would hope that uh, you know that this would be resolved in the course of the negotiations about a free trade agreement. In other words, that whatever trading arrangements that Britain makes with the European Union after Brexit would create no problems in Ireland, so you wouldn't need to have a hard border. If that fails, they said Britain would come up with its own 
solutions, some ideas of its own about how, even if they don't have a trade deal that does it, how they would manage to avoid it. And if that wasn't acceptable or if that failed, then there was a third option, and that was to have uh, full regulatory alignment between Northern Ireland and the Republic for all those areas of the customs union and the single market that affect north-south relations, uh, you know, uh, the all-island economy and the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, and then there was a second part of this which said, and by the way, uh, we don't want anything that's going to create uh, a barrier between uh, the Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom either. Now, uh, the uh, there are a few problems with this as far as Britain is concerned. First is, it was uh, it was a fudge partly to bring the DUP on board because they had threatened to pull the plug at an early stage in those negotiations. But secondly, there is a contradiction between the, the first part saying that we're going to have full regulatory alignment between Northern Ireland and the Republic, and the second part saying we'll have uh, no difference between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom, or there could be, unless that was a commitment to keep the entire United Kingdom in the customs union and the single market after Brexit. So uh, what, the, what, what we're expecting the uh, European Union to do is to say, well, we're going to put the first bit, this commitment about uh, full regulatory alignment between Northern Ireland and the Republic, we put that into the legal text. But that other bit about uh, your commitment not to have any separate uh, arrangements between Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom. That's really an internal matter for you, Mrs. May, and you can go and sort that out with your friends in the DUP. And Britain is um, is rather uh, anxious about this because they essentially would like this to be a, a commitment that was made by the European Union as well as by the United Kingdom. The DUP are already uh, you know, uh, clearing their throats and getting ready for uh, something of uh, a bust up about this. And so we just have to see how that works out. But certainly it does create a potential problem because, uh, you know, if uh, if Britain is to uh, fulfill its commitment not to have any kind of a barrier between Northern Ireland and uh, the rest of the United Kingdom in those circumstances, then it would mean that whatever applies to Northern Ireland in terms of full alignment with the EU would also apply to the rest of the UK, thereby limiting their options. Dennis, that brings us on to Theresa May's speech on Friday. What are we expecting from that? Well, she's going to talk about this proposal that uh, she hammered out with her Brexit war cabinet, as they call it, last week in Chequers. And she's going to be talking uh, to the rest of her cabinet, getting their rubber stamp on that on Thursday. So on Friday, uh, we expect in Newcastle, she's going to outline what this is. And this is this idea that uh, you would have uh, managed divergence, as they call it, uh, so that Britain would start off uh, fully aligned with all of uh, EU regulations for everything. But then as uh, Brexit went on, they would, uh, they would put different kind of sectors into what they call different baskets. So they stay aligned in, fully in some rules for some things like, say, making cars and uh, or pharmaceuticals. Then they would have some divergence. So they'd be kind of aligned, but not fully aligned on things like maybe financial services. And then there'd be other areas altogether where they would just have no alignment whatsoever. They just make up whatever rules they wanted. And so this is her idea. And she, uh, it's already been 
uh, you know, knocked back by the European Union. Donald Tusk being, described it as, sorry, I'm cutting in on you, but pure illusion, isn't that right? That absolutely, yeah. illusory, exactly. And so they, that's what they say, you know, you know forget about it. And so, uh, so anyway, so she's going to talk about that. And there is some expectation that she might throw the Remainers in the Conservative Party a bone in terms of customs unions. So she might talk about some kind of future European trading arrangement, which will not be called the customs union or a customs union, but might have some of the characteristics of a customs union. And so there's some rumours going around Westminster that she may do something like that to try to keep her party together. But of course, she always has to be careful that any bones she throws in the direction of Remainers could uh, unleash the dogs of Brexiteers on the other side. And finally, Dennis, I mean, given that the, the EU has almost dismissed these ideas before she even speaks, you know, is there a sense that Britain has still not, the British government has still not faced up to the hard choices that Brexit involves? Yes, there is. And there's also a suspicion here that maybe this is the way Theresa May wants it, that in other words, rather than her in advance, when, when she's formulating the opening position, rather than uh, shutting off various prospects and rejecting them in advance and having a row with her Brexiteers, say, in her Conservative Party now, that she waits for the European Union to say during the negotiations, sorry, you can't have that. So here is your menu of options. And so that then, in other words, that, uh, that Britain will probably be left with a choice between having something like the Norway option, so basically full integration of the European Union, or having something like Canada, which is uh, a, a regular free trade agreement with maybe a few extras uh, involved in it. And there aren't really very many other options as far as the European Union is concerned. And so this is, the, this is what Theresa May has been uh, refusing to accept in public and, uh, and what her government hasn't been accepting. But it may be that once that becomes clear, uh, from the Europeans, and it's the Europeans saying all of this, that that might be a bit easier for her to kind of make one of the, some of these choices and make some of these tough choices even about uh, the customs union because uh, the nature of the choice would be made, it would be laid on the line by other people rather than by herself. Dennis, thank you. Now to the United States, where the fallout continues from the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida on February 14th in which 17 people died. One of the deadliest school shootings in modern US history, it has kicked off yet another debate about America's relationship with guns and gun ownership. Suzanne Lynch joins me now from Washington. Uh, Suzanne, can you bring us up to speed first on, on the latest on this story? Uh, the, the US Congress is back in session this week after a short break. So is, is gun control on the agenda there th this week? Yes, very much so. It's, it's now two weeks since the tragedy uh, in Parkland in that high school in Florida. And this story um, is continuing to dominate the news, uh, news channels here. That's quite unusual. This didn't happen after Las Vegas. It did not happen after the Texas shooting back in November. But um, this time there is a sense that things might be might be different. Uh, one of the reasons is because this was a school shooting. Uh, 17 people were killed when this former student opened fire on February the 14th. Um, and since then, a lot of students in that school and young people generally have really uh, given a voice and uh, have taken to the airwaves uh, consistently to argue for stricter gun laws. So I think it's a sense that you know politicians can't quite ignore it at this stage. Um, in saying that, as you say, I think it's significant. Last week, Congress was out of session. Um, and in that sense, President Trump took the lead on this. He convened various meetings in the White House speaking to survivors and victims of gun shooting. Um, now, this week, he's going to be faced with dealing with members of Congress 
in terms of how actually to get legislation passed. That is going to be more tricky. And so far, we've heard very, very little from people like Paul Ryan, from Mitch McConnell, those senior Republicans in Congress. They've been silent more or less since uh, the gun incident in Florida. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how they respond this week. And as you say, Donald Trump has had a lot to say about this um, issue. Now, one of the more controversial proposals he floated was that teachers might be armed in the, in the classroom. There's some teachers might be armed as a defence against school shootings. And he had a number of uh, state governors in the White House uh, this week and had a meeting with them. And he had an, an exchange on this issue with the, the governor of Washington state, Jay Inslee. And we might just hear that. And Jay Inslee is the second voice we'll, we'll hear in this clip. I do feel, Governor, it's very important that gun-free zones, you have a gun-free zone. It's like an invitation for these very sick people to go there. I do think that there has to be some form of major retaliation if they're able to enter a school. And if that happens, you're not going to have any problems anymore because they're never going to the school. You're never going to have a problem. So it would just be a very small group of people that are very gun adept. Anyway, go ahead. If I may respond to that, let me just suggest whatever percentage it is. I heard at one time you might have suggested 20 percent. Whatever percentage it is, speaking as a grandfather, speaking as a governor of the state of Washington, I have listened to the people who would be affected by that. I have listened to the biology teachers, and they don't want to do that at any percentage. I've listened to the first grade teachers that don't want to be pistol packing first grade teachers. I've listened to law enforcement who have said they don't want to have to train teachers as law enforcement agencies, which takes about six months. Now, I just think this is a circumstance where we need to listen that educators should educate And they should not be foisted upon this responsibility of packing heat in first grade classes. Now, I understand you have suggested this, and we suggest things, and sometimes then we listen to people about it. Maybe they don't look so good a little later. So I just suggest we need a little less tweeting here, a little more listening, and let's just take that off the table and move forward. All right, thank you very much. You know, we have a number of states right now that do that. And I think with that in mind, I'll call on Greg Abbott, the great governor of Suzanne, I suppose we should point out Jay Inslee is a democratic governor of Washington so there might be a political sort of difference there between him and and, and the president but where does that idea of of Trump's arming teachers stand now? Is that something that's been given serious consideration? I think among some sectors of society it is um, and I think what what was touched upon there in that clip is is the real power that states have on this issue. Uh, They were very important people in that room yesterday with President Trump. They were the governors of states from around the country and even though the Second Amendment is, is, you know, federal law, um, within that, a lot of states have a lot of power to legislate on, on gun law, essentially. So we have seen some states like Texas who are going to consider that and are very much in favor of that uh, in terms of this idea of arming teachers. In saying that, of course, the other half of the country were very against um, the Second Amendment rights to, to own, to bear arms, um, are completely opposed to it. And there's obviously questions there about about safety for teachers, the idea that they can be in the staff room and one of their colleagues may have a gun and they don't know who is holding a gun and uh, possible violence uh, from some of those teachers towards students, perhaps. These are all issues that are coming up. So I don't think it's going to happen at a federal level, but we may see some states moving to introduce that. Um, In saying that, I mean, the problem with Donald Trump's uh, reaction to this is, yes, he wants to look like he's doing something, but it's very contradictory. A lot of his uh, his statements... um, are, are wavering, uh, that he's changed his mind over the last week 
for example, he initially suggested that the age limit for buying certain firearms should be increased to 21. But over the last few days, that has disappeared from a lot of his his commentary. He seems to have backed away from that. And the suspicion is the reason he has backed away from that is because the National Rifle Association, the NRA, don't back that. Uh, so really what we're looking at is he's remained elusive about what he's actually going to do, what actually is going to become forthcoming. One idea he has mooted is strengthening background checks. But in fact, there was already a proposed legislation put forward by a Republican uh, on this about strengthening back background checks already. So it, it appears that Mr. Trump would be just simply piggybacking on something that was already in train before the Florida shooting. And is there any indication, Suzanne, that the NRA is willing to compromise on any of these matters? I think um, I think there's very, very little room for compromise here on this. Um, there is a sense, I think, that uh, the NRA are sensing that perhaps public opinion is shifting here. Uh, significantly this week, we saw a number of businesses withdraw uh, special deals they offered to NRA customers, particularly airlines. Airlines had offered NRA members a discount to certain events, et cetera. Uh, they announced they were pulling out of that. But already we saw a backlash. The lieutenant, lieutenant governor of Georgia, he warned Delta Airlines that they would uh, have to for, forfeit millions of dollars in tax breaks in that state because of their announcement that they were withdrawing these benefits from NRA customers. So it really kind of captures the tensions uh, in this. Uh, but I think uh, the real question will be how much the Republican Party are prepared to push uh, on this and how, how much they depend on NRA for votes Number one is that the NRA is is a big donor uh, to a lot of Republican candidates, a lot of Republicans, members of Congress, both, you know, at a national level in Congress, but also at a state level. But more importantly, even they are very, very important in getting out the vote um, in holding each candidate in elections to account in terms of their gun rights um, uh, background. So I think, you know, and Trump said it himself during a meeting with governors uh, the other day, he said, you guys, a lot of you guys are scared of the NRA. And they are. They're a formidable political machine in this country. So I think there's going to be some move to try and work with them. And I think there will be some kind of move to restrict uh, gun ownership, but it may not be um, any way near as radical as a lot of people in this country want. We hear a lot about the NRA here, Susanna. So we know that it's one of the most powerful political lobby groups in the US. What about the gun control lobby? Is that getting itself better organised now? And is it catching up to any extent? It's a good point. I think that has lacked the same kind of funding, the same kind of political mobilisation that the NRA has had. And the NRA is so closely aligned with the Republican Party in particular. But you're right. I think um, there's a broader issue in America about, you know, the uh, political activism, essentially, and how to get behind um, issues. For example, we saw some of it during the Women's March um, and that maybe is this going to be the issue that galvanizes uh, that more liberal strand of American society? Something like we saw maybe in the 70s during the, the late 60s in the Vietnam War, uh, um, you know, protests. Are we going to see something like this? So the key question will be how far this can be sustained. Now, so far, I think everyone has been surprised that the this, this story has continued to dominate, as I say. Um, and I think the march in Washington on March the 24th, that's been organized by the students and survivors of the high school in Florida. They plan to march in D.C. in about a month's time. And I think that's going to be crucial in terms of telling us whether this is part of a broader um, political moment, if you like, or is it going to be simply, you know, fade from memory as the weeks go by. But as I say, there definitely is a sense of a change in the air 
um, this this time. But really, it's how that is channeled into political activism. And then hence, um, at the ballot box, will these kind of be people go out and vote for people on the basis of their records on, on gun ownership? And are we expecting big turnouts of this, this march on the 24th of March? And, and I think there are other marches planned for other cities. Um, are we expecting um, very large turnouts? Or what do we know about what's what's going to happen on that day? Yeah, there's been talk of up to 500,000 people descending on Washington. So there are preparations uh, in place already. There have been applications for uh, you know, permits for this protest to take place. And of course, Washington, D.C. has always been the site of protest during the Vietnam War and, you know, the Martin Luther King speech, for example, because of huge, huge public spaces here um, around that that symbolic centre of Washington near the Lincoln Memorial and just outside the White House. So it, it's set up, if you like, uh, quite well for public protests. So all signs are that, that people are going to hear that call. They will descend on Washington. As you say, there will be other um, marches arranged across the country. Uh, but I think that really could get, um, could could continue this political me- momentum if it, indeed it does turn out to be a very significant march. And effectively, by doing it on that date, it kind of guarantees that this issue is going to stay in the public eye for at least the next three or four weeks. Absolutely, absolutely. It, it's, it's giving people time to organise it. It's keeping the political pressure uh, on Congress uh, about that. And um, I think in the meantime, though, as you say, you know, the NRA will be very, very sharp in getting their message across. And this will be done much more behind the scenes in terms of talking to members of Congress, in terms of talking to state uh, governors, state legislators, etc. Et um, so I think it's important, as you say, that the there is some more kind of legislative response from the anti-gun rights lobby, that they really put in the same kind of effort, put in the same kind of lobbying that the NRA are going to inevitably be doing, have already started um, in in the last uh, few few days. But it, it will be worth keeping an eye on people, some senior Democrats on this. Chris Murphy, uh, the senator from Connecticut, he has been a huge voice uh, on gun control because the uh, Sandy Hook uh, primary school massacre happened within his state. So he's often taken a lead on this. We'll also probably see Nancy Pelosi uh, coming out strong on this again from, um, you know, her constituents will be very uh, anti-gun rights. So uh, one of the things to be watched for will be if if President Trump engages with these kind of people uh, over the next few days. He has said he will. Uh, but again, we saw that with the Dreamers immigration legislation. Yes, he, he said he would work with Democrats. He engaged with them. But actually, when it came to legislation, he abandoned them, essentially, and he, he, he backed his own party. So, you know, will we see that again with the gun control lobby? But I do think, you know, we can't underestimate the kind of the sense that there is something afoot this time. And there is a sense of some kind of uh, political action, maybe, maybe forthcoming, however limited. Suzanne, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.